I want to try to begin to tackle a challenging topic, a topic that uh, fools speak about on purpose in public who don't know (laughs) how many shoes might be thrown at them from every quarter uh, by accidentally offending everyone in four different ways. Uh, To talk about gender in the Bible is to uh, take your life in your hands and to do it publicly is even worse. But here I stand with the topic on the wall behind me saying, we're going to jump into this. It's a live issue in our denomination. This last summer at the, our denomination's annual conference, there was a session in which uh, Joe Byler gave a talk about how historically the conservative Mennonite conference has affirmed male headship, but as an unfortunate consequence, uh, our practice toward women has not always exemplified the love of Jesus. And the executive board of our denomination offered an apology for the ways in which women have been oppressed and hurt and um, their gifts diminished, their value and their contributions demeaned. And I took that apology as needed and beautiful and helpful. Others were offended by the apology. Uh, They said that the apology is tantamount to undermining our doctrinal position on the topic of male-female roles. Um, And that's kind of started a conversation at a broad level across the various 100 or so churches in this country, uh, in our group, as well as in our local congregation at Gateway, we've made a number of changes over the past, I don't know, since I've been here, that have shifted toward increased uh, freedom and responsibility for women, and sometimes those changes have not necessarily been talked about building a healthy theology underneath them. I'm rambling on far too much. Let's get started. Let's start with the big picture. And I just feel compelled to be like, Holy Spirit, come, please help. So, if you want to start with the big picture, usually you want to start in Genesis. You want to start with God's created order. That's way too small, isn't it? Can you see that at all? It looks so good on the computer screen, doesn't it? It's it's right up next to your face. You can see it all easily. So in the big picture, this blue box has creation in it. And then I have the reference Genesis 2.18. In Genesis chapter 2, God has created all the animals, all the stuff, then all the animals, then he creates Adam, and then we discuss, and everything has been good, and God saw that it was very good, and God saw that it was very good, and God saw that it was very good, and then we have our first not good, and that is that Adam, unlike all the, un- all the other animals, does, he's alone, he's alone, and it's a not good. So we have Genesis 2, 18, then the Lord God said, Sorry, listen to the word of the Lord. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a, in English, helper suitable for him. Or in this translation, a help who is just right for him. 
So the Lord God formed from the ground all the wild animals and all the birds of the sky, brought them to the man to see what he would call them, and the man chose a name for each one. He gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the sky, and the wild animals, but still there was no helper, there's the word again, helper, just right for him. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while the man slept, the Lord God took out one of the man's ribs and closed up the opening. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib and brought her to the man. At last, the man exclaimed, this is bone from my bone, flesh from my flesh. She will be called woman because she was taken from man. This explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife and the two are united into one. So the way I understand this, the way I understand this is humans are made in God's image But because God is a triune creature, that's not right, not a creature, because God is a triune being, capital B, sorry Father, you're not a creature, because God is a triune being, we have a not good suddenly appearing when Adam doesn't have relationship. Because the image of God cannot properly be expressed by an individual, because God's not a monad. He's never been alone. It's always been father, son, and the love between them. And so when God creates Eve, suddenly, finally, we have the completion and now we can have the image of God modeled on planet Earth. Now let's look at this word for, that's rendered help. It's been, I think, insultingly and condescendingly read over the years that here's the man, he has a dignified calling, and he needs his little helper. Kind of like when I was a bricklayer. I wasn't really the bricklayer. I was the helper. I wasn't laying the bricks or making the decisions. I was carrying the buckets and fetching things. In fact, I was even told how to sweep the floor, not just to sweep the floor. This is the stereotype and the reading and the vantage point that a lot of people read into the text as they read this word, helper. But the Hebrew word is ezer kenegdo. Can you all say that with me? Ezer kenegdo. It's two words, and the word ezer means power. It is used only of Eve and God. Eight different times, God in the Old Testament is called our help, our power, our strength. This word is used of God and of Eve. So my question is, if this is a little helper who's subservient, who fetches my bucket and gets me my bricks and I tell her how to sweep, then how could that be what the word is used then for God? Seems like something else is going on here. And the other half of that is the word kenegdo. And kenegdo means one who literally would be rendered one who stands against. Let me put it a different way. She mirrors you, Pete. She is your equal opposite who stands facing you. And she is your power. Maybe another way to put it. Instead of, I will make a helper suitable for him, I will make a power corresponding to man that will assuage his loneliness. Or a better way, I will make an equal opposite who stands face to face with him, completing him. Ezer Kenegdo. 
Now, this is pre-fall. So what happens in the relationship post-fall? By fall, I mean the Christian doctrine that when humans sinned, it messed everything up. Are you with me? Right, so that's creation. Ezra Konegdo. My power who stands in a face-to-face relationship with me. My equal who is my opposite, who completes me. Now let's look at fall. Genesis 3, 16. God says to Eve, I will sharpen the pain of your pregnancy and in pain you will give birth. And your desire, I'm going to just read it in this translation, okay? And you will desire to control your husband but he will rule over you. Now that's interesting. He will rule over you. I want you to hear this very clear. Male dominance, male domineering over women is a product of the fall, not God's design. The power struggle you hear in that text of Genesis 3.16 is a new new dynamic, isn't it? Now that distrust rules the human heart rather than fellowship and harmony, now that something other than love is what we're rooted in, fear now becomes our motivator and there's a power struggle. Now we're we're in a power struggle. There's not a power struggle in Genesis 2. There's a power struggle in Genesis 3. And I want to argue this. That for all humans all over the world, there's a gender power struggle happening because of the fall. And I find that many, if not most, Christians that I know, as they read the texts of the Bible that talk about the relationship between men and women, are endorsing a power mentality in the male-female roles in subtle ways. One of my friends last night said, are you saying that essentially men have been wrong, wrongly interpreting the Bible for all of church history? And I would say, I am suggesting that all societies have been sexist since the fall. And that sexist theologians have been teaching us for the entire history of the church. Anyway. So let's go then to redemption, creation, how it was designed, fall, how it was distorted, redemption, what we see in Jesus should set things right. And in fact, I feel it does. So the big text, if I'm, if I'm giving you sort of one text to kind of represent my view on each of these, Genesis 2, 18, Gen, uh, yeah, Genesis 3, 16, and then Ephesians chapter 5. By the way, you're not going to agree with me. That is okay. My job is not to take what you believe and say it in a beautiful way so that you can leave here believing exactly what you came in believing, just more sure of it. My job is to push you and to challenge you with a different understanding. This is Paul, Ephesians chapter 5, starting at verse 21. And further, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's the controlling sentence of everything he's about to say. Submit to one another out of reverence to Christ. Wives to husbands. Husbands to wives. Children to parents. 
And then even in this cultural context in which slavery was still a disgusting reality, slaves to masters. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. For wives, this means submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For a husband is the head of his wife, as Christ is the head of the church. He is the savior of his body, the church. As the church submits to Christ, so you wives should submit to your husbands in everything. For husbands, this means love your wives just as Christ loved the church. He gave up his life for her to make her holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of God's word. He did this to present her to himself as a glorious church without a spot or wrinkle or any other blemish. Instead, she will be holy and without fault. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as they love their own bodies, for a man who loves his wife actually shows love for himself. No one hates his own body, but he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ cares for the church. And we are members of his body. As the scriptures say, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. This is a great mystery, but it's an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. So I say again, each man must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. This is the word of the Lord. Now, I want to start by saying this. The sexist way that men have expressed male, male headship, the oppressive, sexist, painful, power-over way that we have misrepresented Jesus, has caused many people to reject the Bible, the faith, and the doctrine of headship. I mean, I, I don't just mean the doctrine of headship. I mean the doctrine of headship, the Bible itself, and faith itself. The unchristlike. like let me say it again, because I want to be very clear about this. The unchristlike way that this has been taught and lived has been so repugnant that people have just given up on faith. I was tempted this week to throw portions of the Bible away because those representing the conservative view were so unchristlike in their demeanor and in their tone. And isn't that, isn't that interesting? Humans aren't really convinced by intellectual logic are we we're convinced by fruit and love is the only thing that's credible and Jesus in his relationship to me has been so credible that he's won my heart he's won my trust he's won my willing voluntary worship and service as we sang this morning you're beautiful in all your ways I just couldn't stop weeping because that is how I have come to know God that the way Jesus exercises his headship over me has yes. never been limiting or oppressing. Yes. His, he says to me, you're not a slave, get up, you're my son. He says to me, you're no longer slaves, you're my friends. He says to me, ask whatever you will in my name and I'll back it up. I give you the creative freedom, Tim, to improvise. And as long as it represents my heart well, I will back you up. I will follow you, yes. Tim. Isn't that interesting? Yes. The dignity of being in face-to-face relationship with Jesus as my head has revealed to me that this thing of headship has been misunderstood, not practiced beautifully. And so my, I have real sympathies to people who have reacted against the doctrine of the husband as the head of the wife. I have real sympathies. 
So, why does Paul even say different things to the different genders? Uh, coming from like a modern world, like the modern, our culture is moving toward becoming more and more egalitarian, which I take to be as a really good thing because we're moving away from something that's really sinful to something that's just maybe more just and equitable. And it can really help us start from a much better vantage point as opposed to starting with hardcore patriarchy. Some of you aren't even hearing me anymore because I just said that. But it's okay, we'll get to some folders. We'll put some thoughts into some folders that might be helpful. But why does Paul address men and women differently? It seems like Paul understands that the masculine soul and the feminine soul do not necessarily struggle in general. These are tendencies, these are generalizations. Anytime you speak a generalization, it's not entirely true, is it? There are exceptions. But generally, it's accurate. So Paul is speaking, I think, to different things to the man than to the woman because masculine souls tend to struggle with something different than feminine souls and vice versa. We all tend to be motivated either by fear or love, but how that plays out is a little different. I think the fearful man tends toward abdicating his responsibility and letting his wife carry the heavier burdens. Or... Becoming domineering. I I could be wrong. But I think a fearful man either abdicates responsibility and lets the wife carry the heavier burdens or becomes domineering. And I think a fearful wife would tend toward distrusting her husband, thinking that he either will be domineering or abdicating, and therefore preemptively forging ahead without the husband's full participation. So I take Paul urging the men to love their wives and the wives to respect their husbands as hitting at the root of these fears, telling each of us to honor the other and submit to Jesus in this context. And I want to say this again. I think Christ-like leadership of a man in a house, if a man in a relationship, is the opposite of being on a power trip. I am so sick to death of hearing about someone has to have the tie-winning vote. I want to vomit. If someone says that to me after church, I'll probably just puke on you. It's like, man, is your relationship that terrible that you're always fighting over who's in charge? What is wrong with y'all? Seriously. Christ-like leadership, that sounded harsh, Christ-like leadership is about humility and sacrifice and kindness. It's not about me getting my way. It's about me laying down my, my life. In my experience, the only times that I've really brought up the idea that I'm the head of this family and therefore I'm in, a, in charge, for real, guys, I'm just, this is very honest, the times that I've brought that up, If I'm honest, I'm straight up in the flesh, not the spirit at all. Straight up in the flesh, not the spirit. And what, ha- what, it, has done, what it has done is hurt my wife, mi- misrepresented Jesus, and made a fool of myself. And then after that time, I have to repent and get back in touch with the humility and gentleness of Jesus and apologize and get back down and serve. 
It's kind of embarrassing to say in public. The picture of Jesus in the way he exercises his authority, if some of you were wondering, like, why does Tim do what the kind of things he does in church? This is exactly why I do the kind of things I do in church. It's because Jesus is my model of headship. Jesus, as my model, is why I choose to use my authority at home and in the church to release women into their callings, to empower them when I see that they have giftings. I choose to use my, my authority not to lord it over women, which I think is Genesis 3. I ask them to preach when I see they have the word of the Lord. I follow their leadership when I see they have grace in an area that I don't. I defer to them when their discernment is superior to mine. I'm accountable to them on the elder team because of the bond of love and friendship that we've cultivated. In fact, in other words, it should happen in church a lot like it actually happens at home. Doesn't that just sound like healthy marriage? And my wife, I feel like we function kind of like egalitarians even though we believe in headship. Just full disclosure. We function like egalitarians. We'll get to that. But you're right, I should define terms before I throw them around. That men and women are equal. And I do believe men and women are equal, by the way. But men in charge, men in charge doesn't convey headship in a very helpful biblical way. Even the phrase, men are in charge, I'm like, really? Is that what Jesus is? Is he in charge of me? And somebody would say, well, of course he is. And I'm like, okay. But when, you talk, when you're talking about Jesus... When you're talking about Jesus and the way that I've experienced him, you almost need new words. He's so not like any other person I've ever met that you almost need new words. And like Anthony Gaiman was saying the other night, like the word patriarchy is like almost not helpful because of how it's been misrepresented. We'll get to patriarchy later. Next slide. Let's get on to like some categories. As people, as Christians have thought about this, can you see this one at least? No, it's cut off at the bottom. The bottom one says egalitarianism or egalitarian. As, As Christians deal with, struggle with the various passage on this, it seems to me that I can classify them. I like to classify things. I can classify the various sort of convictions into four different groups. Missing from this list, by the way, is feminism which probably should be on the board, but we're not going to talk about it on this list. But if you could categorize Christian thought on this topic, it would be patriarchy, soft patriarchy, ultra-soft patriarchy, and egalitarianism. And so to give you just a little bit of a, a description, I don't know if I define things so much as I describe them. Patriarchy is the idea that men are in charge and the women submit to the men. Like it or not, God said it, that settles it. Genesis is quoted often by this group that man was created first, man is in charge, man is hungry, man wants sex, get man a sandwich. Then there's soft patriarchy, which is the idea that the men are actually in charge, but the men don't view their authority so much as, they're not as mean about it, I'll put it that way. They're more gentle about it. They view it as an obligation to lead for their wife's sake or for their church's sakes or for their business's sakes or for society's sake. And the wives that embrace this, they voluntarily encourage and support the husband or the man or the pastor or whatever as their their, God-ordained leader because they believe in it. 
And hopefully they would actually see this, these men carrying heavier burdens for their sake rather than being in charge because they happen to have different plumbing. Then there's the third one, ultra soft patriarchy. This is where I kind of land. Uh, and I know these terms are really weird, like really weird terms. But we're trying. We're trying to create categories of thought. Ultra soft patriarchy is functionally, functionally nearly identical to egalitarianism, but still believes that all the passages about male headship are to be interpreted and rightly understood and lived out in a beautiful way. Roles in the home are more decided based on having conversation and seeing who's good at something or who cares about something and trying to find peaceable solutions rather than saying, because I'm a man, I do this, and because you're a woman, you do this. In other words, the headship retains a very significant symbolic meaning, but it's not a dominating feeling in the home. And then number four is egalitarianism, where there are no role distinctions at all based on gender, and Galatians 3.28 often gets quoted that says in Christ there's neither male nor female, slave or free, or Jew or Gentile or anything else. And I have good friends that I went to school with, almost all my theological teachers at Asbury College were egalitarian, both in college and in seminary, so I've studied under egalitarian thought my whole educational career, and I can tell you their marriages were good, they believed the Bible, in fact, they were probably more conservative on a lot of things than I am, and I saw nothing but good fruit in their lives, and so I don't like to hear them slandered, but I happen to be a soft patriarchalist, so I'm not really fully egalitarian. And what I mean by that is women are absolutely equal to men in gifting, in value, in dignity, in worth. God seems to distribute gifts equally without respect of gender, uh, seems to endorse. All I am saying is I believe that Christ is the head of man and man is the head of wife because 1 Corinthians 11 says so. And there's just a number of passages that I go, that is in the Bible and I affirm that. But how I live that out should make the women around me feel really excited that I'm alive. And really excited that Jesus is Lord. And if they're experiencing my headship as oppressive and painful, something sinful is afoot. So each of these four are falling along a grid. If I want to throw another arbitrary, is just like looking at me with a big old smile like I know. You want a question or comment? Complementarianism. Okay, yeah, let's throw the word up there. Um, yeah. Yeah, okay, complementarianism is the idea that men and women are different in their masculinity. I'll get to that later, actually, a little bit. So the, so the essential question is, and what, what I think some people struggle with, is egalitarianism is, is some, somehow the idea that men and women are the same. And complementarianism says... The, the, how do you answer the question, what is it to be a man and not a woman? There's a different answer than what is it to be a woman and not a man. I'm a complementarian. I think there's something different to be a man and different to be a woman. And it's not just uh, physical structures, to, to try not to be blunt and crass. That the masculine soul carries different energies to it that are for a different purpose than a feminine soul. And that a healthy, a healthy imaging of God, God's split his image in two and he's put certain aspects of himself in a man and certain aspects of himself in a woman that together they form something that complements and completes and is beautiful. 
That's complementarianism. Uh, egalitarianism, some, I've heard some egalitarians would actually affirm that. But, but I, so, so it gets confusing, Richard. But the word is extremely important because there's something so beautiful in femininity and beautiful in masculinity that when well-partnered, sparks fly and the universe gets created. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, that, that's me being metaphorical. But <clears throat> there's something incredibly beautiful in God's design. I love the word complementarity. The problem is when it gets associated with patriarchy and an oppressive sort of male-dominated structure that's actually really sexist and the women's voices don't matter. That, that's where it gets really yucky and, and, and icky. So all of these fall along a spectrum. Are we okay? Like, how am I doing? I'm okay? Okay. Hey, listen, how would I know? Like, this topic is crazy. Like, I, I almost want to say, bring rotten tomatoes and just throw them at will. This, these four kind of fall along a spectrum. If I, if I put a word at the top on the right side, I said traditionalist. And then at the bottom, and I said modern. These kind of all don't fall somewhere along this cultural spectrum, don't they? Because like, there's a lot of people who never read the Bible, but they're, they're sexist jerks. And they're strong patriarchalists, right? Because of the culture they grew up in and what they saw modeled. And there's some people who have never read the Bible and they're strong egalitarians because of the culture they grew up in, right? And some of that has to do with traditional versus modern culture. So these all kind of fall on a spectrum somewhere. And traditional kind of evokes images of stay-at-home moms, you know, uh, lots of kids. And then modern kind of evokes images, which is funny because that's what we're doing and we're not very, okay. Mm, yeah. And then modern kind of evokes images of stay-at-home dads with like no ability to fix the car, but lots of computer skills and lots of sensitivity to their emo- kids' emotional needs. Uh, these are meant to be humorous stereotypes. You're allowed to laugh. Obviously, as generalities, they're not accurate in every case. So the difference between some of these is not so much whether they are ha- maintain a commitment to male-female differences and role distinctions as the New Testament preaches them or teaches them, The difference between at least the top three looks to me not about doctrine or even necessarily about hard practices as much as attitudes. Attitudes matter a ton. Attitudes matter a ton. Attitudes matter so much. Attitudes matter so, so, so much. Next slide. The way that Jesus has been in my relationship to him has been so beautiful and good and true and gentle and kind. He's never once taken me to the woodshed, even though I've heard other people talk about him doing that with them. The slave mentality has got to go when I relate to him. The friendship, cooperation, improvisation, love relationship is the goal of his interactions with me. He's not over me in order to limit me. He's training and teaching me to release me, to empower me, to grow me into what he made me to be. He's with me. He's for me. I can hardly put into words the stark difference in the attitude and tone and demeanor I sense between Jesus over over against the religious manipulation and oppression of Bible-quoting men in power over others, telling them what they are allowed to do and not allowed to do, what they should be thinking and not thinking, where they can go and where they can't go. To be just sort of summarized, Jesus makes the gospel beautiful. And hard patriarchy makes me want to throw my Bible in the garbage and walk away from faith itself. Just figured it might be honest with you since we're here at church and you shouldn't lie. It actually makes me angry, nauseous, and literally ready to fist fight someone. Like I was fantasizing about fist fighting someone the other day. It was so much fun in my heart. 
I was like, you want to go right now? Just throw it down. Come on, let's go. Right now. You and me. Let's do it. Come on. Ouch. Ouch. Stop. Ouch. (laughs) And it should. It should. This topic should get you fired up. Because a real man jumps into a fight when a woman is being abused. And that's how I feel right now. That's how I see this issue. And to some people who I've had conversations with, I kind of want to say, unless you've wept, unless you've wept with the women of our denomination, unless you've wept with them, unless you've prayed with them, unless you've received grace from them, unless your heart's been shepherded by them, unless you have walked along with them as they've tried to discern the call of God, unless you've tried to put the pieces back together after they've been molested, sexually abused, objectified, blamed for men's lusts, told their voice doesn't matter, told to sit down and be quiet, told that they're... Like, unless you've wept with them, unless you've prayed with them, unless you've advocated for them, then I don't really give what you think. In fact, the more you state your opinion from that vantage point, the more you're driving me away from your perspective. So this is what I said actually to somebody recently who said, this is not a problem in our denomination. We rock. The apology that that the uh, executive board issued was wrong. This is not a real thing. Here's what I said. Having recently prayed and cried with multiple, let's count them, three, beautiful spirited young women of this conference because they've been sinned against in many of the ways just described, all I can say, fill in the blank with so-and-so's name, is that yes, the world that so-and-so described is alive and well in the CMC. I'll just, just repeating myself. The world in which women are objectified, molested, told to be quiet, their voices muted, treated as less intelligent than men, treated as though they are to blame for men's lusts, condescended to as though they should be grateful that the men have allowed them into the conversation in the first place. But this sexist reality in which we live is subtle. We men have a more difficult time noticing it. We've never experienced life from that other vantage point. Years ago... I read a lady blogging about theology who said that sexism is a problem and I was like, nah, I heard about it, but I'm not sexist and neither are my friends, so what's she talking about? But I kept reading. And she said that she had tried an experiment where she had kind of felt like her perspectives were dismissed just because she was a girl. So to see whether that was true, she created an alter ego and posted online the exact same things as before, but now as a man. And this wasn't like a one-time thing. She did this for a while. And it verified her suspicions that she wasn't crazy. Her posts involved the same thoughts, shared with the same eloquence and theological acumen as before, but suddenly they were heard differently. Her comments were engaged more thoroughly. They were engaged more respectfully. People seemed willing to see maybe she's right. Whereas before it was almost like, there, there, aren't you cute? A girl. Look at that girl trying to involve herself. Good for you, girl. I find that fascinating. On that day, the door of my heart opened just a crack to the possibility that what it's like Right now, right now, today, in this day and age, what it's like to be a woman and not a man might involve levels 
of disparity. Maybe we call it injustice. And year after year, since then till now, I find myself steadily moving toward being more and more an advocate for women. I didn't know I would sign up for this fight. The specific women that Jesus has brought into my life have led me to it by steps as I just kept doing what seemed like obviously his will. And perhaps this little chat this morning is not so much an opportunity for you to change your doctrine, but rather to consider how the ladies around you might be experiencing life very differently than you. I'm talking to the guys in case anyone was wondering at this particular paragraph. Maybe this is an opportunity not so much to change your doctrine, because some people are immediately threatened when I have this talk. He's trying to get me to become an egalitarian. But rather just to consider how the ladies around you might be experiencing life a lot differently than you. And become even more resolved because I assume you do love them. I don't assume you don't. Be even more resolved to practice your biblical ideals with even more sensitivity to their hearts. I personally need and want more of the character of Jesus rooted and fruited in my life in this area. And I share a common love for Jesus and commitment to the Bible with those of you who are at all sorts of different places on the four, four you know, categories that I listed. Next slide. Church relationships. Uh, Vicki Sayers is a leader in our denomination and she said that the following are damaging ideas that are in fact at work among us. This is a direct quote, Vicki Sayers. The relationship between men and women is one of, this is one of the things she thinks is at work. She doesn't believe this, she thinks this is an idea that's at work. That the relationship between men and women is one of the powerful protector and a weaker dependent with little recognition of the strength that women bring to a life lived together, whether in the marriage or in the church. That a woman's place is always primarily in the home. That women can't really be trusted with important public roles in the church. That women would have nothing unique, unique, to contribute to discussions at the leadership team or board level. Not everyone holds these assumptions, says Vicki, but I believe they are at work. Now, now this is me talking. After nine years of being in church leadership, I simply could no longer stomach excluding the women from the elder team because they were elders all along, but being disconnected from those conversations, they were ill-equipped to, to do the shepherding they were doing and, and do it well. And they were disconnected from me. Husbands would leave the elders, elder meeting and go home and give a very biased, highly selected and edited, emotional interpretation of what happened at the meeting. And the wives would be left to try to figure out what actually happened and what actually was said. It was damaging to unity and it was damaging to ministry. Gateway is trying to find our way to what I would call a balance of the fathering anointing well partnered with the mothering anointing. We kind of already know this. It's not healthy when that's missing in a home and it's not healthy when that's missing in a church. 
I absolutely love and respect the ladies that are on the team. I'm beyond grateful to be in the work of pastoral ministry with Tammy and Linda and Sue and Becky and Jennifer and Carrie, especially. (laughs) And our kids' church leader is Sherry, who is just tops. So next slide. Here's what I'm after. What I would call a Genesis 2 balance. What's going on up in there? Everybody all right? I recently asked Steve and Phyllis Swartz to help us, and Richard and Jewel Showalter, our overseers, I recently asked them to help Gateway build a healthy theology of gender in ministry precisely because I am dissatisfied with the options that I've seen practiced. I think I perceive ditches out of balance on two sides. I think on the left, which is your left, my right, okay. I think on the left, the ditch of men and women flattened out as the same. And sometimes with women who are hurt but not yet healed, so distrusting men that they crave leadership over men so that they can no longer be oppressed by them. And then on this other side, on the right, I feel like I see men in charge threatened by powerful women and therefore not releasing them into their callings like Jesus does. And these feel wrong to me. And it leads to this congregation that's either dominated by the masculine or dominated, the other way around, dominated by the masculine or dominated by the feminine. And I don't see that as helping if we use the family metaphor, I don't see that as helping the children. I see the children best helped in a family when there's a strong fathering anointing partnered well with a strong mothering anointing, neither of which is in a competition. They're in a cooperation. And I feel like the conversation about the tie-winning vote assumes a power struggle, assumes we're in a competition. One person recently said to me that a woman shouldn't be an assistant pastor because if she's doing that, she's taking a man's place. And I'm saying, how could she possibly take anyone else's place than her own? Is there limited space for ministry? If every single believer has gifts from the Holy Spirit for the common good and she takes the space Jesus created for her, how is she taking anyone's space? How did you get that weird competitive mindset? Anyway, in the family we all see this, that if if the mother's missing, there's something really missing. If the father's missing, there's something really missing. And they don't do the same things in the same ways. They do different things. They bring, contribute, different tone, different feel. And it's really hard for me to put into words, guys. But I see women as more nurturing in general. That doesn't mean men can't nurture. More teaching in general. Doesn't mean men can't teach. And in my home, the women were the administrators. Good luck operating anything without mom. Right? Dad's job is to work real hard and look good while mom organizes everything and tells him when to be where. Right? And if that was a healthy marriage, and some days it was and some days it wasn't, <laughs> then why is it so different in the church? I feel like fathers have an incredible capacity to name their children. I'm proud of you. Seems to carry tons of weight coming from dad and coming from mom. I love my mom. It means less. 
I depend on her for a different role in my heart. There are other things my mom does that my dad doesn't do as well, or my heart doesn't gravitate to her to get them from him. Am I making any sense? And I'm being very personal here, so it doesn't mean I'm right. I'm speaking from subjective experience. Is, is, you can't make my experience a rule for anyone. But, but there's something different about mothering anointing than a fathering anointing. And a, and a male-dominated church that doesn't have women well-partnered in all levels of leadership feels way out of balance to me. And it doesn't even feel biblical to me. So what I want is the kind of fruit that I've seen in people like Stephen Phyllis Swartz's life. What I want is the kind of fruit that I've seen in our overseer's life, Rich, Richard and Jewel. I feel like the way they minister together is beautiful and healthy and biblical and Christ-exalting. And I want that. I want that. All right, final slide. No, it's not. There's two more. There's another slide, but the other one's real short. This one would just be questions. And because you might just profoundly disagree with everything I've said, What was God's original design? This is like small group topics. How has sin distorted God's original design? How does Genesis 2 and Ephesians 5, that picture of husband and wife, differ from the power struggle dominant theme from the fall? What have you experienced that has caused you hurt on this topic? And how have you changed your thinking on this topic over the years? And that's, these are the final slides. If you... I can post some of this. That way you don't have to write everything down if you're like, oh, I want those questions. Final slide says this. You're allowed to change your mind. I don't know if you know that, but it seems to me that as soon as you open a topic like this, some people hold their understanding of the Bible as equivalent to the Bible itself. That's not helpful. In the coming weeks, we're actually going to be looking at some troubling passages, some difficult-to-interpret passages, and suggesting different ways of reading them that I think are very faithful and reverent than perhaps you might have heard before. So, you're allowed to change your mind. Jesus is better than we currently think. In the little tiny thing it says, this topic is a hot-button issue. People will feel first and think later, so don't expect others to agree with you or even understand your very different perspective right away. So give each other grace in whatever conversations you have about this, no matter how hard you want to punch them in the face. Jesus probably wouldn't be for that normally. Although I did hear a story where a guy punched a guy in the face and I thought it sounded just like Jesus. Yeah, dude was like literally physically beating his girlfriend at a Seattle Seahawks game. And (laughs) my friend's dad walked over to him and said, dude, what are you doing? And he's like, mind your own blanking business, blankety blank. And he goes, you made it my business by doing this right here. And he's like... Hall's off ready to hit him and my friend's dad was like boom one punch the guy went to the ground and I was like Jesus wins (laughs) now you can also discuss whether or not that accurately conveys the Sermon on the Mount uh, in your your conversation of this we're losing our losing our complementarianism and our peace position all in one Sunday (laughs) no I don't necessarily know they should have punched him but it felt good for me to hear about it let's go ahead and stand and pray I've definitely shifted on my thinking on this topic over the years. 
and I want to be patient with you as you shift in your thinking. And you might shift in the opposite direction. You might start egalitarian and move towards uh, complementarianism. You might start somewhere in the spectrum of complementarianism and move more towards a different attitude in how you practice it. I don't know. But I know that everyone who gets around Jesus does not um, go, get worse. They get better. We get, we get smarter. We get sharper. We get wiser. We get stronger. We, we become more loving. So if you walk much with Jesus, change will happen. If you haven't changed on a topic in 30 years, I question whether or not you've been walking closely with Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we invite you to open our hearts afresh to truth. Help us in the areas where our own culture, whether it's egalitarian culture or patriarchalist culture, is blinding us to what specifically you want us to grow in practically in our engagement of this topic. Amen. Thanks, guys. No one threw a single shoe.